You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jennifer Ackerman is the author of The Genius of Birds. Her new book is The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. It's such a pleasure to be here, Rick. You know, one of the things that I thought of when I read both this book and The Genius of Birds is the amazing, beautiful, poetic prose you write and you get it hit it out of the ballpark in like the first page by the end of the first page we're gobsmacked with the variety of language that you managed to find and, and the variety of bird names plant names talk about writing scientific accurate nature-based prose that's just like beautiful poetry it reads like it uh, like something that uh, t.s Eliot would have had a hard time coming up with those words <laughs> well, well, first of all, thank you so much. That is really lovely praise. And the language really does matter to me a lot. Um, so I spend a lot of time on it. I read a lot of poetry, um, especially when I'm writing. I like to have the, you know, the music and the rich language of poetry in my head when I when I um, start to write. And, you know, I'm a relentless reviser, and, um, and I read things aloud, and I really try to get um, a, a richness of language and also a, a, a kind of musicality. You know, I think, um, I think language is a, uh, it, it, it's just, um, it can enrich and enhance a story so, um, uh, so beautifully. And, you know, birds for me have really inspired um, the, the writing, you know, to make it as rich as possible. They are so rich and diverse themselves. And um, so they really, yeah, they really bring it out of me. <laughs> well, it, it, it's really remarkable. And one of the things I really like about this book is as much as it's about birds, it's also about people and also about science. And I think that one of the things that strikes me about this book is how rich the science is, is behind this book and how fast it's moving. I, I love that to see the limits of what we know defined and broken often with like in the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, that really seems fast-paced. It is fast-paced. Um, we really are experiencing a revolution in our understanding of birds. And, you know, it began with their their brains and their uh, and a recognition of their, their ca- the capabilities they have um, in terms of their mental skills. You know, it really, we had misunderstood the brain the bird brain so badly, uh, we thought, you know, we thought it really required a um, a brain like ours to be clever and smart, you know, a cortex with layers. And, and birds, first of all, have a very tiny brain, and they have, um, their neurons are organized in a different way from ours. So we thought, oh, well, you know, if they have neurons that are arranged in little bulb-like clusters, that they can't be smart. And, you know, they have these very tiny brains. Well, it turns out, you know, that their brains are really miniatures. Um, I'm sorry, miracles of miniaturization, and and they're dense with neurons. They're super efficient, and they're really capable of quite astonishing mental feats. Um, and I think, you know, so this is one of the, the the breakthroughs that we've had, and it has set afloat a whole raft of new studies about uh, intelligent behavior in the bird world. Now we understand the brain is capable of these behaviors, so scientists are taking um, a much deeper and wider look at some of the behaviors that we thought were hardwired, but now we understand are often a result of learning and cognitive skills. You know, one of the the other kinds of fiction I love to read is science fiction. And as I read this book, I think these are alien beings. So, and the way you describe them is as if they were alien intelligent beings because they're 
whole experience of the world is so different from us in terms of their sensory input. It shapes a, a completely different kind of being and, and as you suggest, a, a different kind of intelligence that's equal to ours, but just it, it ha- it's very different. <laughs> Exactly. It's, um, you know, there's some, <laughs> it's, it's really one of the great challenges of, of our study of other animals is that, you know, we have certain ways of understanding um, the sensory experience and intelligence, you know, and we use our own brains and our own sensory experiences as measures for other creatures. And, and now we're learning that, oh, actually, you know, the way that birds, for instance, see color is entirely different from ours. It's a complete reimagining of the color experience. So birds, um, you know, they, they see ultraviolet light. And it's not just that they see a part of the spectrum that we don't see. It's that ultraviolet light is actually baked into all the colors they see. So it's a whole different dimension of color. And this shapes everything from the way that they forage to the way that they court. Uh, so this is just one example. Um, and, you know, there, there, there are birds have... Um, similar kinds of intelligence to ours they you know they're they can reason um they think logically uh they can make tools and and very complex tools and use them uh you know they can understand basic principles of physics such as cause and effect they can do uh, basic math you know they can count but they also have kinds of intelligence that are really really different from ours and um for instance, their their spatial skills and their spatial memories go f- so far beyond ours. Um, you know the 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 examples I like to give are the you know the rufous hummingbird, which um, can remember the location of a particular flower in a vast field of flowers, and it can remember not only the location of that flower, but when it visited that particular flower. And it won't revisit it until the flower has had time to refill with nectar. And it remembers this information for hundreds and hundreds of flowers. And it stores this information in a brain only about the size of a grain of rice. So this is a form of knowing that that goes way beyond ours. You know, one of the things I thought that was really interesting was, and I think it was somewhat accidental, but as I read it in this moment, I mean, this is a book that speaks to the blossoming of our understanding of the female of any species, whether it's birds or humans. You point out that uh, much of our understanding of birds was based for, you know, ex years on the studies of, of male scientists and that in recently we've been seeing an influx of female scientists studying birds and we're coming up this is the basis of a very different understanding of birds and you mentioned early in the book you mentioned uh, Jessica Meyer yes uh the the, the book um one of the reasons that we've had such an explosion of discoveries is partly about the bird brain, but it's also because scientists are beginning to shed some pretty old biases and outdated perspectives that they've had. Um, one of them is sensory prejudice. You know, they're trying to see things more from a bird's point of view. Um, and there's also gender bias, just as you as you say, you know, until quite recently, most ornithologists were, were men. And, you know, so research often tended to focus on what male birds were up to and the part that female birds played, you know, whether it was in their ornamental traits or mating systems, you know, those were often downplayed or ignored. And um, for instance, you know, we thought that male birds were, were the ones that primarily sang complex songs. But it turns out that in some two-thirds of songbird species, females sing too. And they sing songs that are just as complex as male songs and often for similar purposes. So we, we really got that one wrong. We got it wrong 
partly because of gender um, and partly because of geographical bias, which is, uh, you know, another kind of blinder on our research in the past. And so much of our, our knowledge about bird behavior really was was based on um, observations of species in uh, temperate zones of Europe and North America. And now scientists are focusing more on birds in the tropics and other parts of the world. And they're finding that the, the behaviors that we thought were typical, you know, uh, migrating, um, you know, pairing up for short breeding seasons, um, defending defending territory, and primarily through male song, those are not necessarily the norm at all. Um, in other parts of the world, birds do things differently. You know, uh, I thought it was really interesting that the... Um uh, the 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 way that you write this book is really nice that you organize it into the the various things aspects of birds that where our understanding is changing talk about uh just the creation of this book and meeting all the fabulous human characters that you do throughout i mean there's just a gallery of really fascinating people here there are, and, and that was one of, you know, the great joys of the book was just um, getting out in the field and meeting some of these scientists who are so passionate about their work that, you know, they're just crazy in love with it and with their species that they're studying. And um, and so, you know, it's it's really one of my favorite parts of, of researching a book is really is getting out there and just traipsing around behind a scientist in, in the field and, and watching her or him do do the work. And uh, so that was uh, really very exciting. And, and for this book, I I did travel all over the world. I got um, to spend a, a, a good chunk of time in, in Australia, a big chunk of time in, in uh, Europe, all over the United States, Canada. And, um, and the scientists were uniformly generous in um, sharing their expertise and their time and their excitement. You know, they're thrilled to have the stories of their birds um, and they're re these are really remarkable stories. Um, you know, I really went for um, for the good story in this book, and um, and it, and they were you know very um, very easy to find. The hard part was you know picking picking and choosing which which stories to include. But uh, I think I got a good range and um, and some really really exciting revelations. You mentioned Australia. Australia plays a big part in this book. You were talking about songbirds, and we now understand through DNA testing that most songbirds originated in Australia. So, I mean, this is really the inception point for a lot of where we can get our best information about birds. Yes, it is. It it you know it's um it's. Uh, it's where song began, where bird song began, and many of the species um, that are familiar to us radiated from uh, ancestors uh, that that originated in uh, in Australia, and you know one of the the um, the birds there called the the superb lyrebird is known as the mother of all songbirds, and when you hear this bird, you understand why it has a voice like no other bird i've ever heard i mean it's it's just this booming resonant beautiful uh, melodic voice and also full of the mimicry of other voices in the forest so it's very um it's really a magical thing to listen to but you you know you you, you understand okay so this, this was where it all began and then and then birds radiated out from australia uh so it's it's really a a fascinating place to go to learn about the beginning of birds bird song and um it's also the 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 place where a lot of birds show some very unusual and extreme behaviors that are um, illuminating the, the the whole bird way of being and the, the range of ways of being in the bird world. You know, one thing that you mentioned uh, was that this writing this book brought you a lot of joy, and that's one of the real pleasures of reading this book. This is a book of unadulterated joy and wonder from beginning to end even there's some 
some of the bird behaviors are a little bit dodgier and, and slightly unpleasant, but nonetheless, the joy in, in the variety of life and, and the, the thrust and excitement of, of all the stuff that's going on in terms of science and the discovery and the people, that this is like one of the happiest and most engaging books I've read in a long time, and I think that that's really helpful in these times. Well, yeah, thank you so much for saying that. It is, um, the, the, the subject of birds brings me so much joy. And my goal really is to try to share the wonder. And it is a, in many ways, a, a, a saving grace. And, you know, right now, um, there's so, so much that's going on in the world that's really difficult. Um, and a lot of people have turned to the birds in their yards and their gardens and their parks and are noticing them for the, you know, really for the first time or, or um, paying attention in a way that they, that they haven't before. Um, and, you know, my hope with the book was really to, to give people another way of seeing birds, you know, a, um, to really look at them as a, as the very innovative, intelligent, and resourceful creatures they are. And uh, so, you know, that was my, that was my aim. And, um, and, and writing about birds in, in a way that's filled with wonder is, is, um, is actually easy for me because I am just blown away by uh, the, the just the sheer wonder and and variety in the bird world. This wonder and variety is most easily apprehensible for most of us in terms of the way birds communicate by uh, making sounds. And nowhere is that sound more beautiful and yet still mysterious in, than in the way you begin the book, in the dawn course. So just explain what the dawn course is and what we do and don't know about it. It's one of my favorite phenomena. And right now, I, you know, I wake up to the dawn chorus every morning and it is just, um, <laughs> it's so exuberant and noisy and wonderful. Um, I live in Virginia and it, the, the bird voices are just, I don't know, louder and more boisterous than ever. Uh, but the dawn chorus, it basically begins, you know, as early as 4 a.m. And it lasts for um, a few hours until the sun rises and, and the temperature warms. And um, it often begins with, with larger birds singing, uh, doves, thrushes, robins um, in, in our temperate zones. And in Australia, it's the big magpies, butcher birds, and kookaburras. And these birds are often um, communicating their, um, broadcasting their presence to prospective mates, or they're staking out territory, um, at least in, in northern species. And we don't really understand why birds sing so intensely before dawn. You know, it may have something to do with um, how sound travels during that time. They're uh, in the early, uh, dark early hours, they're cooler temperatures, calmer air, less ambient noise from insects and from traffic. And all those things allow a bird song to travel farther. So the better to stake out its territory or to broadcast its presence to, to a prospective mate. Um, and it may be that at that time, um, predators are, are less of a threat um, so that birds are, are, you know, more apt to, to sing more loudly. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but it's still, it's still largely a mystery. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, that I love that we, we still have to, um, to, to try to, to understand it's um, because it's such a, a, a ubiquitous um, kind of phenomena around the world. One of the, the more engaging characters and birds you talk about is James Dale, and he studies a Kelia. Am I saying that right? Uh, yes. Oh, he studies Quilia. He studies the Quilia. Yeah, um, which is a very uh, um, Strange and wonderful bird uh, in its own way. It's known as the um, locust of Africa because these birds, there are um, huge flocks. You know, they're, they're compared with passenger pigeons the way they used to be. You know, they would, these flocks of birds just darken the sun. They're the most abundant wild bird in the world. And the, the, 
they nest in colonies and James Dale decided to, to study. They have a um, facial plumage that is more uh, has more variety than than um, y- you normally find in the bird world. A tremendous amount of variety in the shapes and sizes. They have a kind of a mask, and it's got um, different sizes and different uh, colors around it. And uh, James Dale started studying them, thinking that, oh, well, these are probably indicators of the health of the bird, you know, the genetic fitness of the bird, and that that's how um, one mate chooses another is through this, this um, bright plumage and the, the uh, differences in their, in their facial masks. Well, he studied it and studied it and studied it, and he could find no correlation at all between genetic fitness and the the brightness or flamboyance of these um, facial masks. So uh, he was dogged about it. He really kept with it. And what he discovered is that these differences in the uh, facial appearance of the birds are actually signals from one bird to another that oh, I'm a neighbor, I'm familiar. So they're recognizing each other by their faces. And the the birds nest in little tight neighborhoods because everybody nests at once. If you're nesting with somebody you don't know very well or who's not a familiar neighbor, they're likely to be a threat. You want just your familiar neighbors around you. And the birds signal their familiarity to one another through these um, these facial uh, um, they're really identity signatures in a way. They're like badges that say, uh, it's okay, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a regular neighbor of yours and I'm not going to steal your nesting material or your nesting location. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a marvelous example of bird communication through a very surprising um, strategy. Now, one of the things that you write is that birds speak in dialects. <laughs> How how does this work? They do. You know, they, they, well, for the one thing that's important to understand is that birds learn their songs, and they often learn from a, a male model. Um, uh, but now, this, they, is, this is to say they're not like some kind of genetic program that's just dropped in and they just repeat it blindly. They actually, there's a culture out there that teaches, say, you need to learn how to sing, and this is the way you should sing. Yes, yes. And they are vocal learners the way that we are. So they um, listen to their model, they imitate the model, and they practice, practice, practice to get the song just right. And the um, the really interesting uh, idea here is that um, because this is a learning process, there is variation from population to population uh, within birds, within a bird species. So they're not learning all exactly the same song. They're learning slight variations. You know, individual birds have individual variations in the way they sing. And these kinds of dialects can form just like human regional accents. And they can form in very small um areas so that you can have, you know, one kind of um, uh, chickadee that sings very differently from another living not that far away, but because it has um, had this learning process and, um, and some geographical separation, there has been a, the formation of these dialects. One uh, phenomenon you talk about is what you call duetting. And this is kind of miraculous. It's the bird equivalent of conversation, and they're quicker, much quicker on the on the uptake than we are. They they are indeed. It's um you know they've they've really come down to um, you know, our talk. Our, our human chatter is um, back and forth is is very seamless and it seems like you know there's there's not much time in between uh, question and answer or um, comment and comment and you know when there is a lag time it, it it's very odd you know you sometimes hear that on the radio and you think ooh you know there's a this is long pause well the the timing of duets in um, some birds in particular in um, the the species that that I talk about in the book is the canebrake wren, and it has a completely seamless um, song back and forth between male and female, and the 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 two mates they answer their calls within sixty millise- milliseconds. That's 
about a quarter of the time that it takes for a human to respond. And, um, you know, they're there. So they're it, it really sounds like one bird singing when you listen to them. And it's a beautiful song. And it's one of the, you know, duetting is one of the ways that we discovered, ah, you know, okay, females do have complex songs. And, you know, and they're singing, you know, just as, as elaborately as males are. Um, it's one of those um, just examples in the bird world of just perfect coordination and real, really amazing timing in, in um, uh, the back and forth. You know, one of the things that just um, struck me with awe was that was the idea that when birds mimic, you think of mimic, you can do one, you know, it's like, you know, you can do a W.C. Fields voice or a Richard Nixon voice, but doing W.C. Fields and Richard Nixon talking at the same time is probably something no human can do. But birds do this all the time with, with not just bird species, but other sounds from mammals, amphibians, and even the natural world. There's a bird that mimics the, the, the boom of thunder. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and one of the masters of mimicry is the superb lyre bird. And one of the things that it mimics is the sound of trees rubbing together in the wind. Um, there, there, it has such a huge range of, um, of sounds that it can mimic. Another a great example is the um, uh, drongo, and fork-tailed drongo in Africa. And this bird has can mimic 45 uh, different alarm calls of different species, including mammals like uh, meerkats and mongooses. And the bird uses these mimicked alarm calls to startle animals, other animals that are eating food, into dropping whatever it is they're eating and running off because they think they're hearing their alarm call, they're, they're, they think there's a predator in the area, they'd better get out. The drongo swoops in and uh, steals whatever it is they're, they're eating. You, you know, um, the, this alarm uh, mechanism that birds use is really sophisticated. I mean, this is way much, much better than, than the uh, you know, ambulance sirens and fire trucks that go by. This is uh, they. It's a very subtle mechanism and conveys a lot of information. And there's something called mobbing. So explain to us what mobbing is. Mobbing is when a um, uh, a bird uh, notices a threat, and it's you know usually a um, uh, a threat like a uh, oh gosh a, you know a snake or a, a perch predator or something. And it will summon other birds to harass or mob the threat. And a very good example is the chickadee. Um, you know, we have uh, black-capped chickadees, Carolina chickadees in our country. And these birds um, have an alarm call that can communicate to other birds um, the uh, kind of predator that's coming, whether it's from the air or from the land. And also the magnitude of threat that that predator represents. So the number of the DDDs at the end of its call, those actually signify the size of a predator and hence how much of a threat it represents. And what these calls are is a, um, a call to arms, really, for, for other birds to come and mob the threat. And um, and other birds understand the chickadees' warnings, heed them, and and come uh, and to and and all mob a bird together, harass it, try to drive it away. You, you know, I, you talk about uh, Toshitaka uh, Suzuki, who's doing some research, and, and one of the things he found out is that specific sounds that birds make will evoke specific images in a bird's mind. I mean, this is. Um, very, very interesting. Again, this is kind of on the edge of the way humans thought, think, and, and I think that's a, a theme in this book of, that's recurring is that um, a lot of the ways we're discovering that birds have incorporate a lot of the mechanisms that humans incorporate, but not always in the same way that humans incorporate them. 
Yes, and you know, language is one of those areas that we we really thought we, we had sort of um, unique capabilities, in. and certainly other. You know, our our species has a remarkable capacity to use and combine words uh, to create really infinite meaning. But what we're learning is that uh, that birds also use uh, language-like elements in their communication. And yes, when when uh, Suzuki, who's a he's a researcher at Kyoto University, he um, he discovered that that. Um, Birds have a, a a particular kind of bird. A Japanese tit has a specific alarm call that actually makes the bird that's listening um, uh, kind of summon a, an image in its mind. Um, and in in the case that Suzuki was looking at, it was a snake. And um, you know, we think of this human capacity to describe an object um, as very unique to our species, but it turns out that that other animals, including birds, are actually using using um, words in this way that they're descriptive. You, you know, um, when you write early in this book, when I first learned this about the chickadee, it changed the way I heard all birds. What I'd taken as random chirps were, in fact, sophisticated signals to other birds, tweets of intelligence. Um, who knew that tweets could be intelligent? <laughs> well, bird tweets can be intelligent. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, you know the the um the, the one of the examples in the book that that I really love is a bird called the New Holland honey eater, um, and it's really toppling our old ideas about how much information that a, a bird could convey in its calls and songs, because this bird, when it spots a threat like a hawk, it lets loose with an alarm call that's just packed with information. So the call tells other birds um, not only what kind of predator is coming, where it's arriving from, how far away it is, but also how fast it's flying, when to dive for cover, and even when it's safe to come out of hiding again. So you you know, you, you think about that and you think, well, what um, what are we missing in other bird calls? You know, this is a bird that has been thoroughly studied very meticulously by a young researcher named Jessica McLaughlin. She's really brilliant. Um, but I'm sure that there are other birds with, um, you know, equally um, sophisticated communication systems, and we have yet to discover them. You know, um, that the, um, what you write that selection imposed by hawks may have resulted in convergence of an aerial alarm call, one that's high-pitched and subtle and for a hawk difficult to hear and locate. This is really a sophisticated idea that these birds are not only putting out an alarm for the prey to hear, they're putting out an alarm that the predator cannot hear. And that's a very sophisticated level of communication. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's fascinating to me that um, you know, they, they can, they can do that, they can make a, a, a sound that a predator can't hear, they can also actually warn a predator, when they, when they communicate with their alarm calls, they're saying, hey, we spot you, we know where you are. And, you know, we're we're going to mob you, and it 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 alerts the predator really to um, the the slim chances that he's actually he or she is actually going to get um, its prey because it you know it has it has been the 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 community has been alerted, and um, so it the, these alarm calls they serve really multiple purposes and and as you say they're very sophisticated and um, crafted in in ways you know that have. Um, evolved over time. You had mentioned this bird before, but the lyrebirds are just particularly beautiful singers. And one of the things that, that you talk about in the book is the syrinx. This is the part of the bird that makes the bird call. And this is a, a, a tiny, I mean, you know, like, difficult to see unless you, uh, even, you know, you have a magnifying glass me but i mean so talk about how complicated the sounds are that can come from this syrinx and what it is how it works 
Yeah, the syrinx is, you know, um, it's basically the voice box of a bird, and it is buried very deep in a in a bird's chest, um, and sound comes out when the um, the membranes of the syrinx vibrate, so it it shifts the airflow through the syrinx. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, the syrinx in different birds varies tremendously. You know, you've got, um, I think about the, oh, the, um, the, that kind of um, booming call of a crane or a um, swan, ducks, geese. They have these long, looping trachea. And then, um, and, and it, the, these are meant to produce sound that's many times their body size. And then you have the tiny little um, chambers in songbirds. And they have, you know, very delicately controlled. And um, these, these birds have very fine control over the muscles on the sides of their syrinx. syrinx and um, some of them can actually sing duets with themselves. They're basically producing um, different sounds at the same time. And um, and that's what you hear when you when you listen to something like the um, oh the warbling of a hermit thrush or a wood thrush um, or the uh, as I mentioned before the caroling of, of Australian magpies. You know, one of my favorite stories by T. C. Boyle is a story about a fellow who goes to a chef to get prepared that deadly puffer fish. And this is, you know, requires that, you know, it was an incredible accuracy because you're literally taking your life into your hands when, when you eat this. Um, you describe the butcher bird, which does a similar thing with the cane toad. And this is really amazing. Uh, the way birds find and, and locate food and store it and remember where it is, is way beyond my ability to, you know, use my smartphone to find out where the good sandwich shops are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was very impressed with uh, um, the ability of birds to um, to basically dissect their poisonous prey. So they, you know, they leave aside all the poisonous parts and just eat what's what's good, um, good meat. And they know how to do that. And, you know, the cane toad, for instance, has only been in Australia for, oh, I don't know, it's I guess it was around 1935 that it was that it appeared, and so these birds have learned over the years to, you know, how how to eat a cane toad without dying, and um, and yes, the the ability of birds to to hide their food and and refind it is astonishing. It's one of those spatial abilities that I was talking about uh, with the rufous hummingbird another good example is the clark's nutcracker you know this is a bird that lives in the mountains of the of the northwest and of north america and it can hide you know 30,000 pine seeds over uh, dozens of square miles in thousands of different locations and remember where it put its individual stashes months later, you know, and even though the landscape may have shifted because of snow, you know, um, shifting rocks and soil, these birds, they go back to the locations of their original stashes. And, you know, imagine rem remembering thousands of those kinds of locations. It's just, you know, I can't remember where I put my keys. <laughs> now, one of the things that is remarkable to read about is how and and why and which birds play a long long ago i read a book which talked about uh, the early days of the career of diane feinstein and one of the things she used to do when she was a, a supervisor here in uh, san, in san francisco county she really loved to get up and recite the raven she was, uh, she was really good at it. And, and you describe the ravens um, not as uh, poted, grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous birds of yore, but a as playful tricksters. Yeah, you know, it was one of the things that stunned me because I've always thought ravens were, you know, very foreboding looking um, and, you know, somber and serious. But it turns out they're among the most playful animals on the planet and they will toss a rubber ball in the air and catch it lying on their backs you know they love water and snow play 
Um, they'll they'll play catch with snowballs. Um, I actually have photographs of this, and they slide down hills. You know, sometimes on their backs with a stick in their feet. You know, they're just they're completely silly. One one raven will walk over to another and just grab a leg and yank it, and then the other will grab a leg too. And they both you know completely lose their balance, fall over in the snow. It's just all very fun. One of the the people you uh, talk about who studies Raven, Osvath, he uh, describes that Ravens do something that only humans and apes and scrub jays do, which is to use the past to plan the future, or at least some of us do. Yeah, you know, he's he's done some really interesting work on this, and um, it, it's, it's not easy work <laughs> because... Um, uh, it's a it's a complicated concept to um, to prove, but uh, but he's done it. He you know he did it first with um, chimps, and and now he's done it with ravens. Um, and he has found that the ravens will um, save a tool that they know will be useful later on, um, even if they're given. Um, you know, many different options that that look good now. They, if they know that there's that a tool will bring them better food later, they will hang on to that tool. They won't trade it away. Um, they'll literally plan ahead um, for the return of the the uh, opportunity using that tool to get um, some a, a really special treat. You also talk about an Australian bird called the the kia. Uh huh. Which is uh, sounds like a, a wonderful bird. I, I one of the uh, upshots of reading this book is uh, I'd be really interested in going to Australia just to see all the fabulous birds, and I'd love to see the kias, which you describe as birds that just you know these they just want to have fun. Yeah, so they're actually New Zealand birds. Oh, okay. They're not Australian, but um, I'll but go they there. Are... <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, they are uh, just magnificent birds and i have to say i just fell in love with them they're big green parrots um and uh, you know when i first met the the kia at a research aviary i was this was in actually in austria there's a big research lab there that studies kia and i was warned to take off all of my jewelry you know my watches my barrettes everything before i went in to the aviary because the birds are so curious and playful that they'll explore and and playfully destroy just about everything they can get their beaks on you know and sure enough i i go in there and you know i've taken off my all my jewelry but i didn't remember my sneakers and um and when i went into the to the aviary these birds just flock around me like you know like I'm the favorite aunt at a family reunion you know and they're the little 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 kids coming up and saying you know what'd you bring me what'd you bring me um and then they they went after my sneakers and they they just started to to unravel them and shred the shoelaces and you know they were tugging at at my shirt jumping up on my head and snipping away at my hair like like little green hairdressers they're just utterly charming and so incredibly playful one of the areas where uh, recent research, especially into the female of the species, has completely revolutionized our understandings of birds, kind of turned it upside down, is in bird mating. So talk about uh, how um, the, the female of the species once again proves to be a lot more important to this process than anybody ever uh, assumed. Yeah, so um, one of my favorite examples of this is um, the family of birds called the bowerbirds. And, you know, they have a really remarkable um, mating and courtship display. Uh, It's... um, it puts to shame our chocolate and roses gestures. These birds, the males, build um, uh, bowers, which are little archways made of sticks. Sometimes they have other shapes and um, adorned with a variety of colorful or shiny objects. And these are um, uh, to draw the female in. So I want to emphasize these aren't nests. These are really theaters of seduction, and they are designed to draw the female in. Um, and, uh, And the males work very hard. They spend pretty much all of their existence building these bowers. 
The interesting thing is that it's really the female who determines the this incredible ritual. She's the one who selects the mate. And she she goes in and she stands in the little archway in the bower and she judges the male his bower, how well it's built, how many objects he has, his performance. He does this kind of song and dance. And she compares it in her mind with other males that she's seen. And only the male that has the best performance and the best decorated bower actually wins a mating. So in this way, through sexual selection, she is actually shaping this very extraordinary um, display, a mating display that um, that the male puts on. You know, it's the female who's running the show. There's a, a kind of behavior that you describe called lecking, L-E-K. Could you uh, explain what that is and how it works? Yeah, so lecking is, you know, it's a, a, a form of group courtship, really. And you'd think that that wouldn't be such a good idea because you'd be surrounded by all of these um competitors, but it's really fairly common in the bird world. Um, there are lots of species that lack, and they basically, um, they get together and they, uh, the males do, and they they strut their stuff, whatever their, their courtship display is, um, they do that in a lack. And then the females come in and they um, they choose between the males. And, you know, actually a bowerbird is, is um, bowerbirds uh, do a kind of lecking. It's just, it's called exploded lecking. Their, their bowers are located at a distance, but it's the same principle, which is that the female coming in, looking at the male displays, and then picking the mate that she, she wants. You talk about a kind of bird, the lance-tailed mannequin, and this is a bird where the males were compares and there's a, 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 a the alpha male who who is trying to get the girl and he has a, a wingman a, a beta male so talk about that's such an interesting pairing because the the beta male is is not going to get the girl but he's going to help the alpha male do that yes it's one of those examples it, it looks like altruism in the bird world. Um, you have the alpha and the beta male, and they do mannequins. These are lance-tailed mannequins. Um, and they do a quite extraordinary um, acrobatic display. And um, and it's, it's, you know, basically sort of somersaults hopping around each other, over each other. And um, it's very elaborate. And a female sits and watches the two males do this. Well, the alpha male is the only one that will win a mating. Um, the beta male will never mate. He, he's just in there for the performance. And it's, um, it's an extraordinary kind of mystery. Well, well, why would he do this? Why would he expend all of this energy um, without a chance of mating? And the, it, it, it's a kind of fundamental mystery in the bird world. And, the, and scientists are beginning to take, um, uh, pull the threads out from this mystery. And it's really fascinating. One of the things you mentioned is that not only do birds live in a different sensory world with regards to color, they also live in a different sensory world with regards to time. Birds experience time. We experience time, say, at 30 frames per second. That's how fast a movie runs. They are going at about 300 frames per second. And there are birds that do things so fast. There's a bird that can do a somersault so fast we can't even see it happen. Yes, it's actually um, I, in my the talks that I give. Um, I show these two videos that uh, were created by a scientist at um, University of Mississippi named Lainey Day, and she studies the the black mannequin. And um, it, it, she it, she has taken a real time video of the black mannequin's display, and. It looks like the bird is just hopping up and down. But when she took a high-speed video and then slowed it down, she saw that each one of those little hops was actually a complex, full-body backward somersault. It was just too quick for us to see. So these things are moving incredibly fast in the bird world. When I show people these two videos, there's this gasp in the audience. Um, and, and here's what's so cool is that a female mannequin, she can not only see the male's split-second somersaults, 
Her brain is so finely tuned that she can also detect the millisecond differences in the timing of his performance. And, you know, like the female bowerbird, compare it in her mind with the performance of other males. Now, we know that birds sing, but we didn't know they played drums. <laughs> so I guess we, we should have guessed that because music is so inherently a rhythmic uh, creation. Talk about the bird that plays the drums. That would be the male palm cockatoo. And this is just an outrageous bird by any measure. Um, it, uh, it displays by drumming against a perch or tree trunk to impress its potential mate. And it, it drums so skillfully that it's known as the, the Ringo star of the bird world. Um, and the, these birds, they, they make their own drumsticks, which is really in itself a wonder because, you know, tool making of any kind is really rare in the natural world. And it almost always occurs in the context of foraging. So the palm cockatoo, it's the only species other than humans to make a tool for, for display or for musical purposes. And each male bird has his own distinctive signature style of drumming. And um, when he gets going, he might, you know, hoot, whistle, he bobs, he sways, he pirouettes, he pops up his crest. He really puts on a show. You know, as I read this book and The Genius of Birds, I thought... I these are incredibly visual books. I mean, it just brings this whole world into your brain and you're seeing all these fabulous birds. I'm wondering, are you like working with Kim Burns and National Geographic to put together, you know, a, a nice TV miniseries based on these books? I, well, that is an excellent idea. I've not yet um, uh, gone down that path, but it is the it is really incredible um, these the the visual aspects of these and and in the talks that I give, I share a lot of the the videos and the and the also the audios, you oh, know, man. the superb lyrebird and. Um, so I, you know, I encourage people, um, I'm, I'm some of those talks now that they're all being put on virtually and, and, uh, and they are free and open to the public. So I'm going to post them on my website. If people want to take a look, they can, uh, they can listen to the talks and, and see some of the birds and, and, uh, watch them and hear their calls. The new book by Jennifer Ackerman is The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Such a pleasure to talk with you, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.